coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. If anything's coming in on the right side of the boat, you're a right-handed caster. You got to be mentally prepared to make a backhand cast on the backhand presentation on that fish. Otherwise, I'm not going to have time to turn the boat around to give you the opportunity to cast right-handed. And if I do do that, now the wind is in your face, casting on a right-hand shoulder, and it's a really hard shot. Versus if you could just carry your line downwind of the boat, this is cheesecake, man. You can do this all day long. That was Bruce Char with a few tips on tweaking your back cast, cast, giant tarpon, bonefish, permit, and the Grand Slam today on The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how are you doing today? Thanks for stopping by the show. Did you know we have grown this show from one listener into millions by one person sharing a single episode at a time? That's how it all started out. You can keep that momentum going right now by clicking that share button. If you're on Spotify right now, there are three dots down in the podcast app there under this episode, and you can scroll down the bottom and click share and uh, and copy that link or share it out to one of your uh, social profiles, whatever's easiest, this one or a past episode. Thank you in advance if you had a chance to share this week. Today's episode is sponsored by Drifthooked, who has pre-packed fly assortments for every stage of your journey. Check out their fan-favorite nymph boxes, the guy's choice, hand-tied and inspected before being carefully packed into their durable, water-resistant fly boxes. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash drifthooked right now. That's D-R-I-F-T-H-O-O-K. And use coupon code SWING at checkout to get 15% off your next order. Today's episode is sponsored by Eastern Idaho's Yellowstone Teton Territory, Idaho's most renowned zone for fly fishing, from the Henry's Fork to the South Fork of the Snake, and all the high alpine lakes and streams in between. Yellowstone Teton Territory provides anglers and other outdoor enthusiasts with all the information they need to plan their next big trip. You can visit wetflyswing.com slash Teton right now to get the full list of outfitters, lodges, fly shops, and all kinds of inspiration to get you started on your next trip to eastern Idaho. That's Teton, T-E-T-O-N, wetflyswing.com slash Teton. Bruce Chard is back on the podcast today to take us into one of the great saltwater destinations in the world. We find out how to catch giant tarpon, big bonefish, and permit on the flats. We discover how to prepare for tailing fish. We get some sight fishing tips. And uh, this is just an all-around huge episode and a great one with Bruce. So kick back, grab your favorite beverage, and enjoy the trip. Here we go. Bruce Chard from BruceChardFlyFishing.com. How's it going, Bruce? Great, Dave. How are you, man? Happy holidays. Yeah, yeah, happy holidays. We're we're just coming in over the uh the Christmas, New Year's and we're jumping into a new fresh year. What's the uh are, do you get excited for the new year? Is this time of year or something you're like got the New Year's resolutions going and stuff like that? Well, believe it or not, honestly, it's uh the scariest time of the year for me personally. I uh <laughs> I I do a I do a ton of work in December setting up a lot of my trips for the following two years, a lot of my hosted trips. And um, it also leads me into late January, where I usually start fishing uh, pretty hard uh, through all my hosted trips and back-to-back days guiding. So 2023 is going to be probably one of the busiest years I've had in a long time. We've got a lot of guys that are 
feeling a lot more comfortable in traveling. Uh, now that we have the COVID restrictions lifted last summer from traveling with having to get testing and all that jazz, uh, and man, it opens up everything. So of course, everybody wants to go fishing. So I, I literally have six bonefish schools and hosted trips uh, booked for this year. I have a trip to the Baja, hosting a trip to the Baja for uh, offshore species and rooster fish. Um, I'm also going to Northern Canada for uh, striper fishing. <laughs> And uh, and going to the Seychelles, so I have a ton of stuff and and fishing 200 days, guiding 200 days in the Keys. So I have, my uh, schedule is going to go full throttle here uh, in about two weeks. So plus I'm going to do a little something fun uh, later in this month. That's pretty cool. I've always wanted to do it. As uh, I'm friends with Bill Oyster, the bamboo rod builder guy out of Blue Ridge, Georgia, and uh, one of my uh, friends and I are going to go take that class, and I'm going to learn how to build a, a bamboo fly rod and That'd be pretty cool. I love trout fishing up in the Smokies and uh, I'm going to build me a little two or three weight so I can go brookie fishing. Uh, yeah, it's beautiful. I go for a nice big long. Oh, wow. Yeah, I go for a long big hike for a couple hours up into the mountains in the middle of nowhere and it's pretty surreal for me. It's uh, totally different from what I'm used to in the saltwater world, but you know, I love I love the whole sport of fly fishing. I love all all the fisheries for what they are and respect them for what they are. So even catching a little, you know, eight inch little brookie and a little trout stream, you know, at 7,000. It's pretty awesome. Can't beat it. Yeah. And I remember, I think from our last, well, I'll make note, uh, we did have uh, episode 343, Bill Oyster was on. We did a kind of, it was pretty cool because he was actually doing a class while we uh, did the podcast. So the <laughs> nice. class was upstairs. So you could hear the guys working upstairs a couple of times. But Bill's awesome. He actually set a couple of cool coffee mugs that I still use every morning for, <laughs> for the oyster. So, Sweet. um, but uh, and I also want to highlight episode 124 you were on way back in March of 2020 and we kind of did your you know background on what you have going but I re- as I remember you kind of have a background in the trout right didn't you start out back in the west and then moved over east No believe it or not I grew up in Florida and on the west coast of Florida in Venice which is a little south of Tampa and a little north of Fort Myers area where where Hurricane Ian just hit and um I did a lot of nighttime snook fishing there there's a area there that used to be pretty popular called uh snook alley and uh that was a really popular place to go nighttime snook fishing it's kind of caught on the west coast now and east coast now a lot of guys do it so it's pretty cool but yeah when i was 18 i moved to the keys and started guiding so i'm 49 now i can't believe it (laughs) i don't feel like i'm 49 well maybe physically but not mentally i i don't even it's crazy i can't wait to do more fishing every day it's almost like i'm still a little kid so i love it yeah that is cool. And the hostess stuff. So that's really cool. You've put the, you know, all this together and, and does all that hostess stuff happen the first half of the year or did you spread that out through the whole year? No, the whole year. I got three, three back to back to back Bahama trips, um, at Bears Lodge, uh, with Nervous Waters in February. Then I start guiding in the Keys every day until, uh, mid July. And then late July, I'm going to the Baja and then August, I'm going to Canada for stripers. And then then I start guiding again in Louisiana and three more trips to Bears Lodge before early December and then mid-December a Seychelles trip. So I'm literally, I know how much it takes to pack and prep and emails and get everybody ready to go. I got, I'm going to have a busy schedule, so I'm trying to do everything I can right now in the wintertime where it's a little low-key low, <clears throat> low key and I get some time to get some stuff done. So, What's the tip on when you're planning those trips? Like, uh, you know, I know some of them probably like they have more is planned for you, but when you're setting the thing up, is there a lot to it? How do you keep organized? 
I take care of all my guys and most of the guys that go with me, I know, I know them, I know their families and everything. So it's really easy to know their likes and dislikes and whether they like to have a room on their own or what they like to eat or what they can or cannot do physically. I, I have a lot of, um, a lot of information on all my guys that allow me to kind of taper the trip as much as I can inside underneath the tablecloth, if you will, that makes their trip uh, extra special. And they don't necessarily even realize that I'm doing half the stuff that I'm doing. And, you know, a lot of people do hosted trips and that's great. But, you know, the real value that I think I bring to the hosted trips that I do is that, um, is that I know all my guys. I know all the customers. I know who's coming and who's going to be on the trips. I know the guides. I go there all the time. A lot of the hosted trips um, are not necessarily filled with hosts that are as uh, as linked into their customers. They just take whoever signs up and away they go. So I do a lot of work with my guys individually before I go. A lot of times I'll even fly to their house and work with them on casting. Oh, wow. And so, yep, depending on what the situation is and what's going on, I'll do everything and anything I can to make sure that they – have a great trip. So I do a lot. That's amazing. Yeah. It keeps me busy. I like that. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Good. So if somebody wants to go, yeah, if they want to do one of these trips, that'd be a good thing. Maybe start out connecting with you on one of your trips, which we're going to dig into in here a little bit, but one of your trips in Florida in the keys. And then from there, if they wanted to go yeah, further, that that sounds like an awesome idea. Heck yeah. It's all fun. Nice. Well, let's dig into a little bit on what you do just there on your 200 days on the water. So if somebody was you know, setting up a trip, wanting to connect with you. What does that look like? Take us to the water. Is there a, do you ask them which species they're focusing on or do you kind of have a chance at a few species when they get out there with you? Sure. Well, believe it or not, um, a lot of people have probably read articles and heard about the world famous saltwater fly fishing destination, the Florida Keys, right? So, and uh, most people understand that, that it's probably in the world, probably arguably the top tarpon fly fishing destination in the world. I don't think it's very arguable. There's other spots to go, but when you factor in the endless miles of backcountry and oceanside flats with gin clear water and white sand bottoms and just flats with deep channels, there's no other place like it in the world. The water, the gin clear water and the shallow aspect of it is is uh, unbeatable. There's nowhere else in the world that has even a close fraction of what we have. There's some great tarpon fishing on the west coast of Florida and up in the Panhandle as well. A lot of times it's darker water and different types of fishing, which can yield to some unbelievable tarpon fishing. Don't get me wrong. But as far as the square miles, gin clear water, unbelievable flats, you can't beat the Keys for tarpon, number one in the world. And that will never change. I don't know how that could uh, change. So no matter how good or tough the fishing is, uh, you're not going to be able to find better giant tarpon fishing in the world. So it's really cool that we have that connected right to the, the United States. I mean, people travel all around the world to go there. It's, it's awesome. And on top of that, we used to have, when I first started guiding in 92, we used to have, I would say, the, maybe even the top, but the top one or two or three top destinations in the world for giant bonefish. I mean, we would never catch one hardly ever that was like below six or seven pounds. Like they averaged 29 inches. Wow. They were huge. I mean, they looked like giant, you know, they looked like baby tarpon coming across the flats all the time. And, and if we caught a six pounder, we'd be like, wow, take a picture of that one. I've never seen one so small. It was, <laughs> it was crazy. But so, yeah, so those, the big fish are not as prevalent now as they used to be. And we're having a nice restructuring, if you will, of the bone fishery in the Keys, which is great. I think we have more fish um, now than we did 10 years ago, which is really great. 
and a lot of smaller fish too. So a lot of three to six pounds with some big fish mixed in. So it's a nice mixture now. And um, our bone fishery is not the best bone fishery as far as numbers of shots every day. If you go to the Bahamas or Belize or Mexico, you're going to get a lot more uh, shots at bonefish on average, right? But the technical aspect comes into play with bonefishing in the Keys that makes it a whole nother level of bonefishing. So like bonefishing in the Keys is not like bonefishing anywhere else. You can probably, you know, make a poor cast and plop the fish in the head on a windy day in the, in the Bahamas and they'll turn around and eat the fly and give you a little love. Where in the Keys, if you do that, you might not get rewarded. <laughs> so you got to do it right in the Keys and things will come together for you. That doesn't mean you can't catch one if you plop them in the head. But most of the time, that's a little bit more technical in the Keys. And you don't get as many opportunities in the Keys. But I mean, I mean, we had a day this summer, we caught 10. So I mean, if you can cast and you can fish good, you can have a great day, no doubt. So we have some great white sand flats that uh, I love to get out and barefoot wade in the Keys as well and offers really a great way to get beat the heat a little bit because a lot of times the bone fishing is really good in the warm months in super shallow water. So they like to come up really shallow and tail in uh, hot summer months. And plus the what really pushes the fish around and moves them a lot is weather. So like when the cold fronts come through in the spring, it moves them around and the water temperatures fluctuate. So that moves them from deep water and shallow water. And that can make them tough to find, right? And maybe not as um, happy to be up in that super shallow water that's affected by the temperatures more. So in the summertime and in the fall, especially too, uh, where it's still warm and we don't have cold fronts coming through, the weather is mild and consistently the same a lot, which they like that. They like that consistency. So they'll get in a pattern where you can find them on certain areas, um, certain edges of flats and low tides coming up and tailing on the flats as the tide comes in fairly regularly. And it makes it really a great time to get out of the boat, wade around and, and have a different interaction with the fish and the fishery by wading. Wading is unbelievable. And that's why I do a lot of trips on the Bahamas. Well, you know, tarpon fishing is really hard. All this is really hard, right? Especially if you are uh, have low experience in casting, right? The casting aspect is one game. And then you have the angling aspect of the flats and sight fishing is another game, right? So if, you know, I've had guys that are really great casters in the fly fishing industry come down and fish with me for their first time in the salt, boy, they can huck a line a hundred feet inside the, you know, fly fishing show showroom inside, right? They're amazing casters. But when you have to connect the two where you see the fish and then put the fly there according to when the boat is swinging and, and you have to stop it in the wind and, and the current's going this way and a lot of things are going on all at once. I don't care who you are. If you've never done it before, there's just a lot to take in right away. And with sight fishing and the flats, you don't have a lot of time usually. So the time restraint is key, but that's what makes it fun too, right? Oh, I got to get it done. I got to do it right now. And if you can pull it off and you get rewarded with a fish, the fish will reward you big time because they'll take off. They'll rip a hundred yards of the line off your reel in 10 seconds or come out of the air, jumping right in front of you and mass. Jeez. Yeah. It's really rewarding, but it's also hard to get to that point. And, but that's what makes it really, really cool. And everything's totally visual, which is, which is also just amazing because everything's at its peak. Right. And when you combine all that in the keys or in the Bahamas or Mexico, Belize, any of the sight fishing, flats fishing, it just, it creates a, a fishery that is uh, hard to beat. And it's sensory overload all day long, and it's, it's really, really cool. 
So the other thing too is when you go trout fishing, right? If you go trout fishing, which I love to go trout fishing, right? But when you, and this is probably one of the reasons why I like it so much because it's the opposite of what I do every day. But a lot of times you walk up to the stream edge if you're wading in and you see a nice rock and you go, oh, wow, look at that fish rising behind the rock. And you can then take a deep breath. You can sit down right on the side of the riverbank and watch them for 10 minutes. You can look in your fly box and say, I think I'm going to try this fly right here. And you make a cast and, oh, I'm a little short on that one. And then you make another cast. You go, oh, I'm a little long on that one. Oh, I can make another cast. Huh, are you kidding me? You have all day. You could do whatever you want. The fish isn't going anywhere. He lives there. He wants to be there. He's in that little cut or that little area for a reason. He's feeding whatever he's doing. He lives there. He's not going to be able to swim to uh, Africa very easily in a direct route if he wants to, right? So, like, the time factor is once you see these fish come into your what I call your uh, cone of vision or your casting zone, um, you need to be able to actually see the fish. And once you see them, you have seven seconds. So it seems like it's not a lot, but when you get into a, a casting tempo that's needed for saltwater sight fishing, where, uh, you know, you can walk around the block, you can jog, you can run, or you can sprint. So if you're walking, it's going to take you a lot longer to get there than if you're sprinting, right? Well, since we don't have much time in the salt, ideally, if we can feel comfortable and we're competent in sprinting, get that line speed up right away immediately. Combine that with a tight loop. You can shoot tons of line in between each false cast. Get enough line or weight out of the end of the rod to the load the rod enough to make the cast you need to make with less false cast. And since you're doing it faster with tempo, faster tempo, you're doing it all faster anyways, less false cast, boom, your fly's in the water in two to three seconds, one, two seconds for the fly to sink. Now you're at five seconds, you start stripping it right in front of the fish, six, seven, you're hooked up. And believe it or not, depending on how far away the fish is, that can happen in five seconds. Again, it seems like that's impossible, that's not much, but if you really go one Mississippi, two Mississippi, right? It's very realistic. And that speed, okay, your ability to be able to see the fish, and then make the cast right away where the cast needs to be to present the fly to the fish out in front of the fish, right? You don't want to hit them on the head. You got to show, you got to show them the fly 10 feet away or five feet away. So you have to, you have to regulate where you're going to put your original cast. You have to lead and cross the fish, get all your slack out of your system and come tight to the fly and move it and get it right in the zone all within that time frame. And it's really exciting. So like I was saying earlier, I got lots of guys that are really good casters, but have never saltwater fly fish before. So they don't have a lot of experience in sight fishing, knowing what the fish look like, knowing how they move, knowing what they look like in different light angles, different wind surface, um, a water surface uh, structure. Like if it's really windy, it's wavy and white cappy or whatever, different bottom colors, uh, different water flows. Like what do they look like, right? What's the difference between a shark? What does a shark, small shark look like and a and a permit coming up, right? And all that needs to be distinguished quickly, but that's hard without getting a little bit of time on the bow, right? So I've had guys that can really sling a mile, are amazing casters, but struggle at first to try to grasp the angling aspect of it, right? Because now once you throw your fly in the water, you have to put it where you need to put it in order to create that intersect on the fish, right? But that could be a cross-angled current shot while the wind's blowing the bow down on you. A lot of things are happening that you have to regulate slack for right away and then are you really moving the fly when you do come tight or not and if you are how fast are you moving it because if you're moving it too fast 
in your bonefish and you want the fly on the bottom, you might be pulling the fly up off the bottom. They won't see it, right? And, or the exact opposite, when you're fishing for tarpon, you want that fly above the tarpon. And if you strip too slow and there's too much slack in the current, your fly might sink. And if it sinks too low, they won't see it or won't like it or turn off and they won't like that either. So creating the great presentation has a lot to do with being a good angler and having really good situational awareness, having a good feel for what the boat and the current and the wind are doing to you as you're making your presentation, both while casting and stripping the fly. So there's a lot that goes into it, which is really great. But then I have other guys, believe it or not, that have fished a while. They have a lot of experience. And for some reason, you know, just some people are not born athletes, right? And this, let's just face it, this is an athletic sport, right? Can you cast or not, right? I mean, Andy Mill has all the uh, respect in the world from me, and he's an unbelievable athlete. He's a great golfer. He's an unbelievable skier. He is an athlete. I'm not surprised at all that he's really good at casting. So I have guys that I've fished for 20 years that, with all due respect, eh, they've worked really hard, but no, they're not very good casters. And that's okay. It doesn't matter. But they can see really good. And they have exceptional angling skills. So they might be able to get a, get a fly in the water within 50 feet, okay, which is really not that far of a cast. They'll be able to take advantage of probably 80% of all their opportunities are within 50 feet. So if you can just make a nice tight loop, high line speed, low trajectory presentation, uh, you'll be able to take advantage of a large percentage of your opportunities. And these guys can see the fish right away. And they can make that cast right away because it's uh, only within 50 feet. And they can make that cast. If you ask them to go 70, they might not be able to do it. But if they can go 50 or within 40, you know, 35 feet, boom, right away because they can see. And, man, they'll catch fish sometimes more than the guys that are really good casters. So the sight fishing and the angling aspect is huge. And uh, a lot of times it's all the difference in the world. But, uh, yeah, so to get back to your questions about the fishery and what I do. So we also target permit fishing in the Keys. I believe, along with Mexico and Belize, it's probably the best permit fishing in the world. All the fly fishing permit tournaments, well, most of them, I should say, are all in the Keys. They started in the Keys. I think another thing, too, that's really unique that I've watched over the years is the Keys, with all due respect to every other destination there is, uh, you're not finding more technically advanced and devoted career path uh, guides in the world than in the Keys. There's no more guides that take their career and what they do more seriously, sometimes a little too seriously, but <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the guides in the keys are unbelievable. And there's a good chunk of them that are exceptional anglers and exceptional guides. And they, they live fly fishing the flats every day. And uh, it's really hard to beat the knowledge and, and technical teaching experience that these guys have uh, day in and day out. So and and we all speak English, and most of us are not lazy. So we're at, I mean, we're full we're fully committed and full throttle. So you're going to get a totally different level of guide experience uh, in the Keys than you will anywhere else, as far as knowledge and and everything too. So, but on the other hand, one reason why we're like that is because we have to be, because I mean we're permit fishing a lot. And if anybody's not familiar, I mean, permit are known as one of the hardest fish in the world to catch on a fly, right? So I've always shared this outlook, and, and I think it's kind of accurate. But, you know, if you make 35 perfect shots in a row to a permit, they could potentially give you the finger every time. And then and not eat the fly and not give you any love, and it's frustrating. And, and then you take a shot where 
you kind of eased up on your cast for some reason. The, the wind blew the fly and hit you in the back of the head. And then the fly just flutters out there and it's a horrible cast and ends up hitting the, hitting the permit on the tail. And you're like, oh gosh, what was that? And then all of a sudden the thing turns around real quick because he heard the plop and he goes, wow, there's a fly and runs over and eats it and takes off. And then you're going, did that just happen? Oh my gosh, right? Like my angling skills are really good. I got a lot of confidence. I've been making great cast all day. They didn't need it. And then I screw up and hit him in the tail and, and he turns around and eats it and takes off. So I was going to ask you that earlier, Bruce. I was going to ask you like in a year, how many casts do you see out there? What percentage of casts are hookups that are luck versus the ones that are that really was perfect? <laughs> well, when you really break things down, it really has to do with does the fish see the fly? And getting permit to see your fly is more challenging than a bone and a tarpon. Why is that? Well, I think they're pretty concentrated um, on looking down, but most of the time, permit don't allow you to get very close. So what I mean by that is with getting a shot at a permit within 50 feet is challenging unless you have an extensive amount of wind or clouds or challenging visual um, and fishing conditions, right? Which hinder your ability to see the fish, but it also hinders the fish's ability to see you. So give, you know, tit for tat, right? So you can get closer to fish on crappy weather days and they won't notice that you're there as easily. So when you factor that into play, most of the time when guys go fishing, they're going fishing on nicer weather days or days that can't see as good. And the permit are farther away. They're maybe 40 to 60 to 70 feet away. And when that type of position calls for a shot, do you know how hard it is to know exactly where your fly is at 65 feet away Yeah, with the current that's moving through? Because permit love water flow. So they're in areas that are usually a little bit deeper and more consistent strength water flow. So you don't really have a, a really good concept of exactly what your fly is doing. It's really hard. And where you think your fly is at 65 feet away, because you can't see it, it's not on the surface, at least most of the time it's not, it's really hard to have a clue where your fly is. And if you don't have a ton of experience, back to that angling aspect again that we talked about, like if you don't have a lot of experience on the angling side, right, learning how fast your fly moves in certain current and water depth and what fly you have on and how the materials on that flyer and how that affects how the fly sinks or doesn't sink or stays buoyant when you strip and your leader too. If you have an all floral leader, it sinks like a rock. If you don't have a mono leader, that's going to affect how your fly swings. So knowing there's a lot of aspects of this that come into play that you might not know or realize for a long time, unless you have somebody sharing that info with you. And yeah. Yeah. So permit fishing, I think it's just harder to get the fly in front of them and know that it's in front of them so they can see it at greater distances and higher the odds you're you're fishing for permit, the higher the odds you're having a farther distance cast and distance shot. Everything's more challenging. Yeah. So a lot of times the permit will end up leaving our, uh, I would say, cone of vision, right? Our ability to cast and never even seeing the fly. <laughs> like we might even have four shots at a permit. But in all reality, you really should only ever have one because once you make the fly, once you make that presentation, ideally, it needs to be in the zone so the fish can see it. And if not, and you have to pick up and take another shot, your odds go down. The boat's now swinging more now, or the wind, the wind angle is different or the fish angle is different or whatever because things are changing constantly. So your ability to get that fly in front of them on that first shot increases your odds the most. 
and then any shot after that, your odds go down. It does not mean that you can take nine shots at one fish and maybe you finally get the fly in front of him and then he eats it. Who knows, right? Whatever, every circumstance is, is different. But every time you have to pick that fly up and take another cast is another opportunity that you might spook the fish. The fish might see you. The fish might see your, your line in the air or rod tip movement or feel or hear the boat with the push of the water from the boat or whatever, right? So there's a lot of different factors. Plus they're very spooky, right? Where bones, bonefish and tarpon on average are are not as spooky, right? When you start getting into special weather conditions where it's really calm and, and high sunlight and all that jazz and they become pretty spooky as well, which is fun, but, but nothing as spooky as the permit. So, you know, like I was talking about the guides in the keys, like when you do this every day, right? Yeah. Man, you get dialed in on what works and what doesn't. And that's why you end up adding length to your leader every day and, and changing flies. Like literally every night you're going to change an aspect to a fly that's going to make it do something that'll work, work a little better on this specific spot, maybe even the specific water flow and a specific uh, sun angle and whatever. You're going to want to put a different color on a different type of uh, pattern on the fly with maybe less material, more material, less weight, more weight more wiggle so that you have to move it less, but it still gives it more life. I mean, it's an amazing amount of uh, work that goes into the technical aspect of fishing in the Keys. Today's episode is sponsored by Angler's Coffee. With more than 40 years of experience in coffee, the Angler's Coffee team roasts a full range of coffee with one goal in mind, delivering excellent coffee to every single angler. Responsibly sourced from farms using sustainable growing practices, you can rest easy knowing you're doing your part. Roasted and shipped within 48 hours to assure freshness. For me, when I open up that bag of anglers, I know it's going to be super fresh and it is going to be probably the best thing I've tasted all day long. So you got to check that out in the morning. This is, if you want to step up to not only amazing coffee, great taste, but know you're doing your part. Uh, Joe and the anglers team uh, that he's got it going. He's always got something new going on from the artist series that they've done to right now. They've actually got a new bass blend, which I just purchased over to anglers, the bass blend. You got to check that out. Um, I was just over there. They got a mayfly blend, which is cool. And then of course, some of the standards that they have the muddler blend and some of the other good stuff. If you head over to wetflyswing.com slash anglers, you can check out everything they have going on right now and you can get a little taste and even check out the dry dropper on the go tea bag option. Joe really loves this and this is a little bonus they're putting in. If you want to really simplify the process, check out the dry dropper, some hot water, grab this tea bag and drop it in. You're good to go with some coffee. Add a little creamer, maybe some honey, uh, which I like to do. If you haven't tried honey, give it a shot. And, uh, and you're good to go. Like we said, Joe is the man. He's got it going. Great coffee, great taste. Uh, you know when you pay for this coffee, it's a little bit more expensive than just your run-of-the-mill stuff, but you know it's going towards good causes, whether that's conservation or just connecting with local groups. Uh, Joe always has something positive going, and you got to check him out right now. Wetflyswing.com slash anglers. That's A-N-G-L-E-R-S to make a change and get a taste of great coffee today. Let's break down. That's a good summary on that. So you've got the tarpon, 
uh, bonefish, permit. I'm sure there's some other species out there, but let's think about the the permit. And if I'm sitting there on the boat, let's just say we're on the boat, and and then you know it's like okay, there's a fish out 70 feet. What's that look like from picking up your fly to casting? Are you you got one back cast to make, and then you're trying to shoot it out there? Take us that. What would be the perfect cast in that situation? Well, again, it depends on the angler's ability to make the cast, right? Their experience level in casting. So can they drop a back cast if the wind, if they're right-handed caster and the wind's coming in at 20 miles an hour on the three o'clock position on the right side of the boat and the fish is at 12 o'clock, how are you going to make the cast? Most guys will immediately start casting right-handed because they're right-handed. Well, if they do that and they have to make a 70-foot shot, that means they have to carry 40 feet of line in the air in order to be able to make that shot. So when they do that, if they don't do it at, at super high line speed and carry a side cast, right? So your rod tip is nine feet out to the right of you to give you a little bit more flexibility to make that cast. So the line doesn't blow into you with the line out nine feet from you. Along with keeping the line low to the water, you have to have super fast line speed so it doesn't hit the water, right? While you're false casting. So all that can be changed, if you will, by simply turning around and casting on the left side of the boat, downwind carrying your line on the downwind side of the boat, okay? And casting behind the boat at six and dropping your back cast presentation at 12. Cause you know, you got to make a 180 degree cast back and forth, right? So you're making a forward cast at to your left at nine, your back cast is at three. Does that make sense? Right? Yep. So if you're, if you need to make a cast at 12 o'clock noon at 70 feet with a strong wind on the right side of the boat, how are you going to make the cast? You got to turn around and make a backhand presentation at 12. We're mostly most everybody would think, oh, I got to make a forehand cast and fight this wind. No. So the time that it takes, though, to make that decision right when you're going to make the cast, I need to make a back cast. Man, that's that's hard, right? So even when I tell my anglers that position, right, where I don't have time to explain to them what's going on, right? So, dude, give me a back cast at 60, 70 feet. See that fish coming in at 12? Yeah. And they immediately start casting on the right side of the boat. I'm going, hey, dude. I said, make a, make a back cast, right? So I've learned over the years that I have to actually tell them this before we get to that point and explain to them, listen, man, if anything's coming in on the right side of the boat, you're a right-handed caster. You got to be mentally prepared to make a backhand cast on the backhand presentation on that fish. Otherwise, I'm not going to have time to turn the boat around to give you the opportunity to cast right-handed. And if I do do that, now the wind is in your face casting on a right-hand shoulder, and it's a really hard shot versus if you could just carry your line downwind of the boat, this is cheesecake, man. You can do this all day long. Yeah, and that's the backhand. And the backhand cast, and again, on that one is where you're literally kind of doing your false cast normally, and then you're casting it. Your backhand cast is the line that shoots out to the fish. Correct. Back Making a backhand presentation cast. Right, which is not the easiest cast to be accurate. I mean, definitely, I feel like it's harder to be accurate with the backhand cast. Um, but you, sometimes you hit, hit on, you know what I mean? Sometimes you nail it. Sometimes, And that's a fun cast to nail to get good. Yeah. Well, the good thing about all that is that you're actually making backhand casts every time you make a false cast. So this isn't totally foreign. So you don't have to like restructure muscle memory groups and practice anything different. But one thing I've also noticed um, and I know we're bouncing around topic here a lot, but this is this is all really good, really important information. So the key thing here is is when you s- start to make your normal cast, and I say, hey man, hey George, go ahead and give me a fifty foot cast and carry like thirty five feet of line back and forth, and the guy makes beautiful casts back and forth, no problem, right? So 
when I say give me a back cast, you know, at 12 o'clock, nine times out of 10, the angler will completely change his structure. He'll stay there and he'll bring the right hand across his chest or he'll turn sideways and try to make the cast something totally different than his normal casting stroke that he's comfortable in making, that he's also very good at. He's got muscle memory in that. They change it all up and then they can't make the cast because it's totally different. So a back cast, just something to remember here, a back cast presentation truly means a back cast presentation, which means you got to turn your ass around. Turn around 180 degrees from where you want to make your cast and cast away from where you need to make your cast. So now your back cast is lining up where you need it to go and you're doing it with the same muscle memory that you're very comfortable and confident with doing because you've already done it millions of times with back casting when you're false casting and then lay your cast out behind you. So you did make the point that it is challenging and it is. I agree. It's a totally different mental thing, but 90% of everything you need, you already have. You just need to tweak out on how to present it a little more uh, differently and at different angles with tighter loops and practice that a little bit and you'll be able to learn that quickly. And when if you can take advantage of shots on your backhand presentation, then the guide never has to turn the boat. Yeah, exactly. That's huge. And that gives you more opportunities. Well, we talked about this earlier about how little time we have. How about we don't eat up half of those seven seconds that you have trying to turn the boat around for you? And on top of that, we have to do it quickly. The faster we turn the boat, the more time that we create for you to be able to take more false casts to take the shot you need to make. And if we don't have to do any of that, how amazing is that? Yeah. So you can help your guide and help yourself and help the whole situation by being really confident in casting. And then once you're competent casting, so here's another thing that happens I've noticed over the years is we spend a lot of time focusing on how to make a cast and where to make the cast and all this jazz. When, if you don't live and fish a lot, you don't have the opportunity to learn what the bonefish looks like, what a permit looks like, what a tarpon looks like in the water on different colored bottoms, in different water flow, in different water chop, in different cloudy conditions. That is only something you can gain experience in when you're actually on the bow of the boat or in the boat out in the real habitat, right? You can't learn that in your backyard, but you can learn how to cast in your backyard. So if you can focus and work really hard to get competent and practice a lot on the casting side of things, it allows you to not be so focused on casting when you're in the real, real, real time and real world fishing. Because now you can pay attention to all the other factors that make you become a good angler. And so, but a lot of times we're focusing on casting while we're trying to throw on 150 pound floating tarpon that are sticking out of the water right in front of the boat. And it's like the most unbelievable opportunities have come together for you on your trip. The weather's just right. The conditions are just right. The fish are happy. They decided to come in and they're bitey and we can't get the fly to the fish. And that's, that's a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's it. So the casting is a big part. So what about on the seeing of the fish? So what are, I mean, that sounds like that's just on the water time. Anything to think about there as you're preparing and do you just have to get out there and do it? Oh, totally, man. There's no, there's three main factors when looking for fish. Okay. Um, one is shape. Okay. So when you scan the water, you want to scan in and out and right and left. Okay. And you want to try to have, three main things you focus on. One is the shape of the fish. Okay. And we can break this down a little bit after this. Two is the color, 
color contrast, right? And three is movement, okay? Either lack of movement or movement. So when you scan and the guide tells you, because we use the boat as a clock system, okay, just remember this too and clarify this with your guide before you get on the boat because everybody's got a little bit of a different view as far as how far 40 feet is from one guide to the next. And another guide to the next might have a little bit of different view as to what is actually three o'clock and nine o'clock and 12 o'clock on the, well, 12 o'clock is 12 o'clock. But a lot of times nine and three is construed by the angler as nine and three o'clock to the bow of where they are standing on the bow, where if the boat is actually the clock and six o'clock is in the stern where the guide is and, and 12 o'clock is on the bow, then halfway in the middle of the boat is nine and three o'clock. So not on the bow, right? So that has created a lot of uh, interesting um, outlooks, especially when I travel around the world with different guides internationally, they view things differently. So you just got to get on the same page, right? Um, no problem. It's easy to figure out real quick. But on top of that, the angler, the guide's going to say, hey, man, 10 o'clock, to your left, 10 o'clock, 50 feet, ideally. Okay. And your job is to then point the rod at where you think 10 o'clock, 50 feet is, right? The guide is watching and seeing where you're pointing your rod. And he is going to determine whether you know, you're pointing in the right direction. And just so everybody knows, we do this every day as, as far as guides go. We can tell immediately when the angler can see the fish versus when he can't by his reactions. So when the angler swings his rod at 10 o'clock, 50 feet, we can see immediately whether he sees the fish or not right away. Because if he sees it right away, there's a multitude of things he's going to do immediately. He's going to go, one, he's going to go, oh, I got him, right? Just out of reaction, right? Like, oh, I got him right there. Or he's going to make immediate response. And with that immediate response is going to be an acute physical reaction. Physical, not only verbal, but physical. Like he's going to key in and lock in on it, right? He's going to point his rod. He's going to go, oh, there he is. He's going to go and point his rod right at it, bend his knees a little bit. It's, it's a common reaction, right? It's kind of like, uh, an immediate jolt into, okay, I'm ready to cast, right? Like an adrenaline push, right? There, he's right there. I got him. He's right there, right? And then once we get that confirmation, the guide, that is, gets confirmation that the angler can see the fish, now we know we don't have to worry about that aspect and we can move on to the next, right? But to get to that visual aspect, right, which is what we're talking about, um, how to see the fish, sometimes the, which is really hard to do a lot of times, especially if you're looking in the glare or direct sunlight or cloud reflection glare. I mean, it's hard to see fish and do it quickly with pressure, right? Like, hey man, there he's right there, dude. He's only 40 feet, he's coming right at the boat. And if you can't see him and you're running out of time, then you miss the shot, right? Which is okay, it's part of the game. But so anyways, you point your rod 10 o'clock, 50 feet. And if we don't see any reaction that shows that he sees him, we're gonna say, hey man, you're pointing a little bit to the right because it'll move to the left. So you're right, you need to move your rod tip to the left. But here's another key factor that happens at this point. A lot of anglers that are inexperienced, they'll move their, their rod tip real fast and they'll move it in a chunk. They'll go whoop and they'll move real quick over to the left. As in like they are going to key in on something to the left and they stop right there and they just kick right over to that spot. And of course the fish is in between where the rod tip was pointing originally and where they stopped the rod. So we go, hey man, no, back to the right again. So they go whoop back to the right and they're blowing past the fish every time they do that so what you want to do is move the rod tip 
steady and slowly. Maybe not super slow, but steady is the key word. Because if you move it steady versus jerk over to one spot and jerk back, right? Now the guide can stop you immediately when you get to the point where you're right on the fish. Right. Totally. And by pointing the rod tip, you're just doing this just to get them so they can actually see the fish. That's all you're trying to get them before they cast. Yeah, because the odds of them getting the fly in front of the fish and being visually connected to the fish are are huge odds to increase your chances of getting a fish, period. Because if you can't see the fish, how are you going to put the fly in the right spot? How are you going to know where to put the fly? So a lot of times, um, I've seen this all over the world, where guides will tell their anglers to start casting. I'll walk you into it, Mon. You know, start casting, start casting. And then sometimes that works and you get a fish, right? Which is really great. But many times I've watched that scenario happen out and it doesn't play out. Like 90% of the time, it does not play out. And what it does is it throws an extensive amount of frustration into the boat with the guide and the angler because they didn't catch the fish. And on top of that, the angler is frustrated because he never saw anything and he didn't know what was going on. He was unable to catch a fish and he was unable to create any experience value and learn anything from that whole crazy psychotic casting session where the guide's telling him where to cast. He doesn't know what's, what he's doing or what's going. He can't relate to anything. So it was a whole wasted opportunity, uh, 360 degrees all around the barrel. So I would rather have the guy try to find the fish. And guess what? If he doesn't catch it, if he doesn't see it in time and he spooks, he's going to see him after he spooks taken off because usually they see the movement, right? Right. So at least he's going to be able to correlate what the fish looked like, where he was uh, in accordance to the time frame, and put everything together. Because like I said, you're only going to get 90% of the time you're not going to catch one anyways blind casting with the guy telling you what to do. So some guys are happy with that and that's cool. I don't think they gain a lot of experience with that whole outlook. So I like to try to Get the guy to see the fish because, again, remember what I mentioned to you earlier about how they, when they see the fish, they lock onto it and it's obvious. The well, same thing happens when they're casting to one. Because so sometimes I've seen a guy see the fish and he starts casting, right? And I'm going, bro, you're looking at something different. That's not the fish. And they're like, oh, really? I go, look 10 feet to your left. And then he looks to the left. And then as he's false casting, he's just kind of, you know, kind of moving line in the air. And then he goes, oh, my God, there he is. Right. And then he locks right in, boom, dials right in and drills the fly right where it needs to go. And I'm going, yeah, you saw it that time. Right. So it's a dramatic difference for the anglers. When they see the fish, they have a chance. So trying to look for the fish. Right. So the guy tells you 10 o'clock, 50 feet, you point your rod, move your rod tips smoothly. He'll guide you into right where he sees the fish and where the rod tips pointing. Now, your goal at all times as an angler is when he says 10 o'clock, 50 feet, you need to scan. You cannot focus at what you think is 10 o'clock, 50 feet, because what's going to happen is you're literally going to be pointing your rod and trying to create a fish to appear out of nowhere where your rod tip is pointing. That's it. And literally you could be pointing three feet to the right and the fish is three feet to your left. And you don't see it because you're hyper-focused on exactly where your rod tip's pointing. So if it's a 50-foot call, Scan from 30 to 60 feet, okay, distance-wise, really quickly. It's really easy. And then scan from 9 o'clock to 11 o'clock. So your 10 o'clock at 50 feet is going to be in the middle of all of that, right? And if you scan versus point and direct your eyesight to one spot, then you can apply the three factors. Is it moving? 
Is there movement there? Is there color contrast? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And what's the shape look like, right? Because here's what's interesting is when you get a lot of experience in looking at fish in the salt, you would be surprised at how straight line all the fish look like. They're all straight. Even the permit, which are kind of different body morphology. They're straight. Now, if you're looking at a side view, okay, you're going to see tail, right? Especially with permit and tarpon because they have bigger tails. Bones are hard to see uh, their tail necessarily unless they're sticking it out of the water. Eh? But you're going to see their shadow on the bottom if they're in shallow water. You're going to see a different view. But a lot of times the view, even if it's anything other than coming uh, sideways of you, you're going to see a straight line. And even when they move. Now, the only thing that doesn't make a straight line necessarily when they're moving is a shark. They kind of, sharks move like a snake. They kind of zigzag and have a lot of water body movement. But man, when a tarpon or a permit or a bone are swimming across the flat, you can't even tell they're moving. I mean, you can tell they're moving, but you can't see their, their actual body move that much, right? Oh, wow. No kidding. Yeah, it's really cool. They're very, very straight. And if you look on a flat and try to find something straight, good luck. It's really hard. Like there's, there's not a lot of straight things laying around on the flats. So if you can correlate shape with a straight line and then put color or movement to that line, you're going to be able to pick out a fish that will jump out at you. This is a good good reason to make sure your your eyes are up to snuff. Now, I'm just telling you experience I've learned over the years. I've had many guys have a frustrating trip trying to see the fish. And they go, man, I just couldn't see any of those fish. And they go to the doctor and they needed prescription glasses. They didn't even know it. And then when they got them and they came back, they're like, oh my gosh, what a difference. That's huge. So the eye part is huge. Yep. And on top of that, the uh, being able to scan is huge and scan for those three factors. So fish movement, shape, and then the color as well. So a lot of times when I'm looking for fish, I'm looking for color. I'm looking for color, contrast at a great distance. And when I see something that looks like the color that I'm interested in or whatever, then I hyper-focus in on that spot and I look for, for movement and, and or shape. And if I still can't gather and it still looks juicy to me, I'll get a little closer and get a little closer until I can definitely make a decision on what it is. But all day long, I get guys that point their other go, what's that? What's that? Was that over there? Was that a one over there? Is that right? You know, all day long, <laughs> which is cool, right? Because that means that tells me they're they're involved, they're interacting, they're not sleeping up there, which is great because this is a this is a team effort. And you know, even though you guys write the check to us so we can take you fishing, it's not us catching the fish for you necessarily. You got to make the cast. You got to be able to put it all together as well. We're making the connection between you and and the fish and helping you try to get to the point of being successful, but. Inevitably, you need to make the cast and you need to make it happen. Yeah, that's perfect. When you're on the boat, do you instantly kind of know what fish is? Are you calling it out saying, hey, that's a bone, that's tarpon? Are you letting them know? Well, yes, but here's another factor too. Is when we get on a flat, I'll tell the guy like, hey man, this is a tarpon spot. Grab your tarpon rod. So even if there was a bonefish that swam by, uh, you probably would not be in the position to try to catch it because we're looking for tarpon, right? But a lot of times tarpon and bonefish are nowhere near in the same flat too. So uh, maybe if you're looking for smaller tarpon under the mangroves, you might see some bones or permit around that. And that's cool. And that can create a fun little aspect like, wow, here comes the bones, grab the bonefish rod. And then they're putting the other rod down and grab the bone. So that can be exciting. That can be exciting. But for the most part, that's not what we're doing. So we'll come up on a flat and I'll be like, all right, bro, 
this is a permit spot. Grab the permit rod and get ready. And we're going to fish around this point. You know, I mean, you have a pretty good idea what you're going to do and what to expect. And a lot of times, if we're going to fish a flat that has bones and permit on it, we'll use a specific fly that I know that they both like. So then you can target either one. No problem. Okay. Either one. And then what does that look like in the morning? Are you doing this even before if somebody, you know, whether they want to really go for a permit or a bonefish or a tarpon, you know, are you doing that? Is that well before the trip even starts figuring out what, you know what I mean? Like the focus or is it always kind of open? No, like, you know, sometimes you get guys that are like, well, I've been doing this for 20 years. I've already caught tons of tarpon and tons of bonefish. I want to go permit for six days straight. (laughs) And if that's the case, then, then we go permit fishing. And we focus on permit. Every spot I go, we go for permit. And we target and we target and we target and we target. But a lot of guys, too, are like, oh, I want to go do whatever you want. Like, I want to go do whatever's best, right? And I'm like, okay, cool. Well, the tide's good right here on this flat for some bones. Let's check this out. And then later as the tide comes up, we'll go hit a tarpon spot. And they're like, yeah, that that sounds great. So it just depends on whatever they want to do. We can do it all. And the Keys offers that. That's what's interesting is that there's not many places in the world where you can get a grand slam. And it's a really good spot to get a grand slam. I'm glad you said grand slam because that was the thing I was kind of thinking about. Like when you, when you go for, I mean, what are the, you know, if you say you had six days and everything came together, you know, is there a, there's a shot that you could get, I guess the grand slam could be these three species that we're talking about, or it could be other species, right? What, maybe describe that. What is the grand slam? Well, in my opinion, the grand slam is the Holy grail. It's the bonefish permit and tarpon in one day. But again, um, because <laughs> one day sounds one day to me sounds like a challenge i would be like well one week maybe i could do that but I, even that sounds challenging well it could happen any day of the year because a lot of the fish that live in the tropics they live there for a reason and they're there all year except for the big large migratorial tarpon they seem to have larger numbers uh in the winter in the spring and in our early to midsummer. but um any day we leave the dock, we could see a triple-digit tarpon uh, throughout the whole year, though. And any day we could leave and have shots at bones, permit, and tarpon throughout the day. But everything in the shallows is heavily reliant on weather. It's the most sensitive fishery in the world I've ever fished with weather. And I've seen it in the middle of the day change. Or you're going to leave the dock. You go, wow, what a gorgeous day. There's no wind. It's the most beautiful day you ever saw. And then you don't even see a fish all day long. It's like, what the heck? And then the next day, it's blowing 25. You can barely stand up on the boat. You got all wet getting where you're going to go. And you get up there and there's fish everywhere. You're like, what the heck? How come they weren't around yesterday? And so, so it's a never-ending weather aspect that we have to learn and adjust to every day, especially as guides. And uh, sometimes it's pretty frustrating because you can get a a weather pattern that's not favorable and it can make fishing challenging for, you know, sometimes a week or two. It depends on whether the fish are going to be up or not. And there's not many of them around. So you got to do lots of traveling throughout the day. It's just part of the game, man. It's part of the deal. And that's what makes it so good. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Meal Bars, made by a small team of passionate outdoor enthusiasts. The Range team only uses the highest quality gluten-free ingredients and they know they want to fuel your body with the right stuff. We did a recent episode where we talked about backpacking and packing your pack and getting ready for a might be a hike into a high mountain lake. And we talked about the power of food and getting the right food in your pack and how important that is to shaving off a weight. And this bar packs a punch with 700 calories. This is a super dense bar 
tastes good, and uh, and it's exactly what uh, we were talking about in that episode. So uh, you can pretty much throw one bar in there if you had to. To be honest, this thing would probably make you through a couple of meals. I eat these things whenever I need to, and usually one chunk of this, one bite, will keep me going for quite a while. So it's quite a bit different now that I've been snacking on these for a while, definitely than pretty much all the other meal bars because of the caloric intake. And this is important when you're out there for safety or on the water or just staying uh, from, from that, keeping that uh, stomach from growling. Like I said, range bar is small enough to fit in your hand and slides easily to, into your pocket of your vest or sling pack, anything you need. They currently have two flavors. Uh, one is chocolate coffee, and the other is molasses ginger sea salt. You can check out Range right now at wetflyswing.com slash range. R-A-N-G-E. Range meal bars. You won't go back to the normal bar. Okay, back to the show. Just on the gear, just for a sec, if you or somebody was coming here to kind of hit the go for the three, what's the quick breakdown on, on rod setup, rod and line sort of thing? Is, is Do you need a bunch of gear for this? Do people need to bring their own stuff? What's that look like? Well, a lot of the guides and the keys are, are um, I wouldn't necessarily call it sponsored, but maybe in a way they're sponsored by a lot of the manufacturers. So most really good guides have really good tackle, top-notch reels, top-notch rods, ready to go. And if you... Um, if you don't have the plethora of saltwater rods yet, it doesn't mean you can't go. They have everything rigged and ready for you, and you're going to love it, okay? So that's a good thing. On the other side, if you wanted to bring your own stuff, which is I encourage you to because that's something you're used to. You're used to using that setup all the time, and it's good to practice with. So when you actually start to fish, you're fishing with the same stuff you're practicing with. I think it makes a big difference. Your comfort and confidence with it is really key. So uh, an eight weight is the average overall bone fishing rod um you can throw you can throw a seven weight if you want nine foot eight weight yeah almost everything's nine foot yeah i mean yep 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 yep. so uh you're gonna use a nine foot four piece or whatever a lot of guys in the keys have one pieces which are sick by the way oh wow they're better i didn't say they're better necessarily they're they're really great i mean we'll have to talk about rods one time and break down rods and how that works but yeah we could say that for another one yeah yeah we could we could spend another couple of days on rods real but anyways uh an eight weight's great all-around rod for bones right okay and then a nine weight or and or a 10 weight is really good for an average permit setup i would say we use nines more than than tens but if you have a nine a lot of times if it's really windy and we're bone fishing guys will like to use the nine for bones instead of the eight because it's just got a little more beef to it and when you use a bonefish fly on the nine weight the fly's a little lighter you're going to be able to control it a little easier and, and knife it into the wind a little easier with a nine weight so guys like that extra feel with that so an eight weights a, a nice average weight rod for bones nine's a great one for a little heavier day for bones a nine falls into play for the average permit rod and then a 10 is great for when it's a little windier and you want a little extra boost uh as far as that goes tarpon fishing is uh, an average rod is an 11 weight that we use. It's our heaviest rod that we use. And a lot of times we'll use a 10, even for big fish. So something to remember a little bit here, and not to get too crazy on this right now, but remember the weight of the rod has to do with the, necessarily with the weight of the line. And the weight of the line, the grains of weight in the line have to do with how big your fly is. So a lot of times, if we put things into ratio proportions with rod size and line size compared to the size of the fish, it doesn't make any sense. Okay, because we're going to use an eight weight to catch a six pound bonefish. 
Okay. The proportion difference between that and the eight weight for the six pound bonefish is not even in the same universe as it is with an 11 weight and 160 pound tarpon. Yeah. Come on. Right. Like it's blown out of proportion. So that's why tarpon fishing comes into play where you, you really need to be a good angler fighting the fish, knowing how much pressure you can put on the system that you have, your knots, your leader system, your hooks that you're using, all that jazz, right? So that's why big tarpon fishing adds a whole nother level of difficulty as far as uh, technical advancements and how to do that. And that's a whole nother three more podcasts on that. That is. Well, I'll highlight that one. We did, you know, a few years back, that one where we did focus on the giant tarp. And I can't even remember. It was so long ago. I don't remember what we talked about, but I know we tried to do our best on the intro. For this, it sounds like, you know, like a nine weight. That might be the run. If I was going to bring two, I might bring like a nine and 11. If you're only going to bring two, I would say that's the case. Yep, for sure. Yeah, that's the case. Nine. And then what is, let's just go down the track just for uh, on the flies a little bit. What is the permit? And there's probably a lot of different colors and variation, but what would be one fly if you had to kind of have one out there you want to tie up? What would that be? Well, it depends. Um, there's a little shrimp called a spawning shrimp. That is a great, I think it's Peterson spawning shrimp or the Raging Craven fly. Both of those are really good bony and permy flies. And they're fairly lightweight, so you can cast them on the nine, no problem. Um, a lot of the big crab flies and merkins that, uh, have been traditionally used for years. They cast a little easier on a 10 weight setup. Um, but I personally like throwing shrimpy type flies that allow my anglers to strip the fly and stay connected. And it, you can fish them differently, which allows you to get them in front of the fish a little more effectively without spooking them. Crab flies, there's a couple different ways to fish crab flies. And, and one of the ways can be challenging if you're going to try to do the pop and plop and drop or whatever you want to call it, where you got to put the fly right on the fish. It calls for an extremely accurate cast. And then on top of that, you have to be immediately uh, know where your fly is, how much slack you have in the system, watch the fish's reactions. It really takes an advanced experience level to be able to pay attention. God, that'd to that. be cool. Yeah, oh no, it is really cool. But <laughs> I'm guessing you're doing that closer in. I, I mean, are you doing the plop and drop when it's 70 feet out? Well, it depends on what fly you're using. Yeah. So if you have a 70 foot cast, you got a crab fly on there and that's your tactic, then yeah, you're going to have to do that. <laughs> so that, so this is, this is where I was saying earlier, permit fishing is harder because you have to be perfect with your cast. And most guys, most guys are not perfect with their cast. Most guys actually have a hard time, you know, forming a tight loop and making the cast where they want to put it in a timely manner. So it's all good. It doesn't matter. I'm just saying that's part of the challenge. Yeah. Well, and the sidearm thing is one that, you know, especially if you're coming from trout, well, not always, but, you know, that sidearm cast isn't something you do all the time, but that is a good one to practice, right? You could practice the sidearm at night. Oh, it's huge. It's so vitally important. Matter of fact, most guys that are true saltwater fishermen, they automatically, even if nobody telling them, they automatically end up being an off side caster or a full side caster all the time. It's just common. It's just what it is. Because if you think about it, if you're permit fishing, I mean, if your line's way up in the air and your rod tip's straight up in the air, nine feet up in the air, and your line's way up high, I mean, my God, there's more movement way up there. They're going to see it, right? So you got to have the line travel low to the water in the first place. Plus, if you're fishing in wind, which huh, is like 95% of the time in the tropics, and a lot of times it's pretty strong wind, you know, carrying your line high up in the air does not give you much control over it. And plus, when you lay that cast out, and it lays out high in the wind, it's going to blow as it falls to the water. The more time it has to fall to the water because of its height where that you're casting from is going to allow that wind to blow tons of slack 
in it, you know, blow the leader back at you as it falls down or blow it completely to the right or left of your target or whatever, right? It's really hard to have good accuracy when it's windy and you have a high line presentation from your rat tip traveling high in the air and the line traveling high in the air. So if you go low to the side, it allows you to, um, it forces you to increase your line tempo and your line speed. Otherwise your line's going to tick. So that's really good. And you combine that with a tight loop, like I mentioned earlier, you're going to be able to shoot more line in between each false cast, especially with that high line speed. And therefore have the line in the air less. It's moving through the air closer to the water. So it does not uh, reveal itself to the fishes easily in the air when you're false casting. And three, you're going to be really accurate because when the line is only two or three feet off the water and you lay it out straight above the water, you're right in the water right away and it lays out straight without letting the, the wind blow your line uh, slack in the system or off, to, or off target. So it's really, really key to be a, a good side caster for sure. That's perfect. Yeah, side casting. Well, let's talk about the line really quick. Do that just for a sec. So if we're talking permit, what's the, you got your nine weight. What is the line? Is there one line that you're using for all these species with different weights? Yeah, so I love, of course, I'm going to be, uh, <laughs> I'm going to tell you the one I like the best and what the whole industry is like the best. So I think we talked about this the last time, but, you know, the Scientific Angler's Grand Slam Taper is my original design. So, um over 20 years ago, Jim Teeny uh, put me on the professional series fly line design team with Flip Pallet and Lefty Cray and Dave Whitlock, Gary LaFontaine, Kelly Gallup, all those guys. And then I ended up having to move to Scientific English because Scientific English bought uh, Ross Reels at the time. And All right. Yeah, and, and I moved over to uh, Scientific English, and we made the Grand Slam line for them and immediately came one of their top-selling saltwater fly lines. And then after a while... Orvis bought Scientific Anglers. And during that transition, I ended up working with Tim Rajeff at Airflow, and we used the same design and made the Tropical Punch Line. And when we made the Tropical Punch Line, that immediately within three months became the top selling saltwater airflow line. They sold more of the Tropical Punch Line than all of the other saltwater lines they had combined for seven years. <laughs> so the taper is really amazing, and it works really good in the salt. Okay, so it works really good for bonefish, permit, and tarpon because of how it gets the line leader and fly to lay out straight. That's the main key. So when you're an angler on the flats and you're sight fishing, slack is not your friend when you're casting, and slack is not your friend when you present your fly into the water. You need zero slack or as least amount as possible because if you're not tight to your fly when you're stripping it, you're not moving it. And if you're not moving it, then you're not putting the fly in front of the fish or the fly is not going to be where you think it should be in front of the fish. You've got to be able to stay tight to your fly, right? So when your line leader and fly lays out straight on your presentation, that's less work you have to do to get tight to your fly. You're tight right away. And that is key. Now, when you're false casting without getting too deep into casting techniques and technology and casting, having your line lay out straight while you're false casting is huge as well. So if it does not lay out straight on your back cast into the wind when you're making it downwind cast, you're then going to you're going to have a shortened stroke length on your next forward cast until you finally come tight with the fly line cuz the, the wind is blowing slack in your line because it didn't lay out straight. So a lot of people don't realize how important it is for it to lay out when you're false casting. It's it's vital to have a slackless presentation to the fish. So all that together, when you learn about the fly lines and how they work, when you have a front taper, um 
not to get too crazy, has a really short front taper, which dumps all the power right into the leader and gets it to lay out straight. So the Grand Slam taper is great for that, right? By the way, um, Airflow sold a couple of years ago again. <laughs> oh. So, um, yeah, the Mayfly group bought them out. And and uh, now I've moved back to working with uh, my buddies at Orvis and Scientific Anglers again. So I'm I'm back promoting the uh, Grand Slam line and working with SA again. And those guys, Brad Beefus, they're awesome guys. Awesome guys over there. So the um, the Grand Slam taper is still the same Bruce Chard Grand Slam taper that I started with uh, SA over 10, 12 years ago. So, and yeah, well, they still have it because it sells like hotcakes, man. It is the the most popular fly line there is. And the reason why is it has hardly any front taper and it dumps all the energy right into the leader and gets your line leader and fly to lay out straight. And when it lays out straight when you're false casting, the guys cast better. <laughs> and when it lays out straight when they present, they catch more fish. So it's like it helps in every way. Right. Well, this is good. I think I think what we'll do is leave the line chat for another one because that's going to be awesome to dig into all the, the tapers and then same with the rods. So we got to probably a couple more episodes we got to work on here. But and the history too is another big thing. You mentioned Jim Teeny. We just I was talking to George Cook recently, and we were talking about Teeny up in you know up in Alaska. It's pretty interesting because I have a connection with him back in the day and stuff, and I always love hearing the old stories of SA right because Teeny was there back I think in that 3M and all that stuff. They originally made Teeny's sinking lines originally when they got started with them. And Jimmy's one of the greatest guys in the entire industry. He's unbelievable. I love Jimmy. He's the nicest guy in the world. He's was incredibly gracious and, and helpful to me to get started in my career. And we've spent a lot of time together on the boat. And uh, we've caught a lot of tarpon together. So I love Jimmy to death and Donna. They're great people. And uh, I couldn't, couldn't say anything more about them, how great they are. No, I know. I hear you. I'm, I'm going to give Jim a call here this week and see if we can get him back on too for another. It's been a while since I chatted with him way back at the start too. So, so this is good. Well, I think, you know, this one for sure, we're leaving tons. It's hard. You can't really dig into all the species. I just want to do kind of a primer on, uh, you know, heading down that way and, and we'll kind of check back on a lot of this stuff, but let's do the, we got the two minute drill. Let's see if we could uh, get this, uh, wrap this up in two minutes. we got a few questions that are going to be quick and fast. You ready for this one? Let's go, buddy. All right. All right. So, uh, so the first thing I was just thinking earlier, the, you said the seven seconds, it kind of feels like the seven second ride, almost like hooked on an eight second ride, like with the cowboy analogy, right? Is that kind of what this feels like when you're out there and it's, does it just feel super crazy or are you, is it like Zen moment when you're out there and this doing this stuff? Well, experience will dictate that your level of experience will dictate that. So your ability to harness your uh, buck fever, if you will, and put on, put that energy into actually putting the fly where you need to go is going to increase your odds big time. And the only way to do that is to just do everything more, fish more, cast more. And the more you do it, the better you're going to be. All right. Perfect. And what's the, you got a dog in the background. What's the dog? You got it. One dog or two? No, it's my yellow lab. <laughs> what's his name? Echo. Oh, Echo. Nice. Yeah. It's actually my son's dog, but yeah. Oh, cool. All right. Um, well, you were t- we talked about some wind. Do you have another wind tip? If somebody wants to get better at casting in the wind, what would you tell them? Yeah, so one of the biggest factors of casting in the wind that I've seen that helps most anglers is to realize that it's really hard, even for the best casters in the world, to shoot line on your presentation cast into the wind and still get it to lay out straight. So what I've always shared with anglers is is try to get into the mindset that you need to carry outside of your rod tip while you're false casting in the air. You need to carry as much line as you need to make your cast into the wind. 
Okay. So if you need to make a 45 foot cast into the wind, you need to carry 45 feet of line in the air. Okay. And then when you make your presentation, hold on tight with your line hand, forcing all the energy in that loop to go right into the upper leg of the line and lay out straight. Okay. Because the second you let go with your line hand to shoot the line into your presentation, the wind is going to beat down your cast and throw slack in your presentation and it will not lay out straight and you will potentially miss the fish or have to make another cast right so stay connected on strong especially stronger wind casts right yep yep and listen if you can't carry if you need to make a 60 foot cast into a 20 mile an hour wind and you can't carry that much line in the air guess what i don't care who you are you're not making the cast so you're gonna have to have the guy pull you closer or you're gonna have to wade closer before you start to take the shot so understanding your limitations and what you can do and what you can't do and with different weather conditions will probably increase your odds of catching the fish more because you're going to go, I can't take that shot right now in this wind and with this wind angle, I got to get a little closer. So then you take that extra step to get a little closer. And if it works out and you get the shot, now you can drill them because you got the confidence and you know, you can make that shot and you make it and, and it works out for you. Perfect. And what's a conservation group? If somebody want to dig in and support some of the group or a group out there doing the work, who would that be? It's hard to beat the BTT that really focuses on supporting habitat and building the fishery that we all love all around the world. Yep. Bonefish, Tarpon Trust. Yes. Yes. Awesome. What's the uh, glasses? I know Costa, we've worked with Costa in the past. What would be the perfect saltwater like lens? So. Uh, <laughs> or is there more than one? Uh, well, the, anything that's copper or amber colored lens. Now remember when we're fishing and it's maybe someone that doesn't know this from experience or doesn't have the experience to know this yet, but when a cloud comes over, the top of your sunlight and clouds you out. It's literally like turning the lights out. Like poof, see it. You have zero contrast. Uh, everything's kind of the same drab, low light color, and it changes everything. So your ability to not have a cloud on your eye all day long, if you will, means that you should not be using a gray lens. So gray is like putting a cloud over your face all day long, and if you use a light colored amber or a light rose colored, violet colored, or even a, like a light copper color lens, it's key to creating the best balance of contrast and uh, the best amount of light allowing to get into your eyes so you can see that contrast. And that. So I like the copper lenses the best. Awesome. Well, we'll leave it there and we'll send everybody out to uh, brucechardflyfishing.com if they have questions for you or want to connect on a trip. But uh, yeah, Bruce, uh, we'll definitely circle around for another one to kind of uh, dig more into all this. But thanks for all your time today and excited to uh, hopefully get out uh, your neck in the woods uh, sometime soon. Sounds great, Dave. Talk to you soon, buddy. So there it is. Wetflyswing.com slash 408 408er. That'll get you the good stuff. Check it out right now if you want links and everything else we have going quick listener shout out before we get out of here today matt tweetmeyer from san jose california want to give matt a big shout out I want to say thanks for your support matt and uh and appreciate you for listening to the podcast if you want to connect and get a shout out here you can go to our website wetflyswing.com or check in with me send me a dm on social uh, give us a mention that would be amazing let's take one quick peek before we get out of here today and see where we are headed next All right, we're not leaving uh, on Thursday. We're not heading too far away. We're heading down to North Carolina with Brian Horsley. 
We're going to be digging into a little more saltwater fishing. He's got a unique fishery there that we dig into as well. So we're keeping this saltwater love going this week. Uh, if you get a chance and, uh, and you have time and want to let me know what you'd like to hear, maybe that's another saltwater trip, maybe that's a freshwater, or maybe that's just some random topic or guest, please let me know, and I'd love to put that together for you. I am on my way out of here. We've got the Euro School right around the corner. If you're interested in Euro nipping and uh, finding out about that, heading to a great location for some trout fishing, we got that coming up as well. And maybe we'll see you out there on the water. Maybe we'll catch you online. And I hope you are having a great evening, a great morning, or a great afternoon wherever you are in the world. And I look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.